So this morning we're continuing in our mini-series on the Christ of Christmas. Last Sunday we saw that Christ was our prophet, the great prophet that God sent to speak to us. This morning we're going to consider the fact of his birth in the sense that he is fulfilling the role of priest. So if you recall, the difference between a priest and a prophet, a prophet receives revelation from God and tells the people. A priest hears from the people and then offers praise, prayer, or sacrifice to God. They're both roles of being a mediator because without God doing something for us, we cannot come to God on our own. And so we're going to look at this idea of Christ being the great high priest. So as we kind of begin that this morning, I need you guys to interact with me a little bit. You're like, yes, I'm going to make you guys talk to me this morning. Help me think of some titles or some names of Jesus. I gave you one of them. So we know him as Jesus. What else do we know him as? Christ. Savior, good. Lord, excellent. Son of God. Emmanuel. Son of man, excellent. Shepherd. King. We will look at that next Sunday. Righteous one. Prophet, good. Excellent. The Holy One. I can't write and think at the same time. Hmm. Prince of Peace. One of the things I was going to mention this morning is, is just asking you guys if you have your plan for Bible study and reading for 2024. Have you thought about that yet? Um, you could start the year just by doing a study of his names and titles. I mean, you can think about all the truth and the richness that you can grab just from that. If you need ideas for reading, study plans, come and talk to us. We have things that we can suggest. There's so many different ways to approach the scripture. So make sure you have your plan in place. So these are two of which we're going to focus on this morning. And then we're going to add one, Messiah. Does anybody know what the name Jesus means? There's an Old Testament counterpart, Joshua. They both mean God saves. Christ, it's not his last name, it's a title. What does Christ mean? 
It means the anointed one. Messiah, it's a different word, but it's the same meaning. It also means the one who is anointed. So when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, his name is exactly what he came to do. He came to save, and he is the Lord's anointed one. So the idea of anointing in the Bible is something that God instituted in the Old Testament, first mentioned in the book of Genesis, and then he weaves it through the rest of Scripture. But it's a, a practice that the Israelites would do, and it was a symbol of God setting somebody apart for a very unique work or ministry. And so what they would do is they would take oil and they would place it on the person or they would pour it on the person to signify that they're being set apart for this work. And the symbol was to communicate an idea that God was telling this leader that the work that I want you to do cannot be accomplished unless you are given my Holy Spirit. So it was a visual of God saying, I'm going to anoint you with the Spirit to do this work that I've called you to do. And as you look at the, the practice of anointing in the Old Testament, there were three offices where anointing took place. Prophet, priest, and king, which is really what's propelling us to do this mini-series as we get ready to celebrate the birth of Jesus, because he was all three of these offices, and he is the anointed one. But what I want you to do, what I want to do with you this morning is I want to take you through a mini Old Testament survey of God giving a promise that he's going to send one to us and start to put pieces together from the Old Testament of the description of the one that God was going to send. Now, you guys know the end of the story, obviously. We know that it's Jesus. But I want you to understand the richness of what the Old Testament prophesied about him, specifically as the anointed one. And then we're going to end by looking at his priesthood in the book of Hebrews, specifically chapter 7. So if you're not there, you can take your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 3. We need to first see the promise that God made that he was going to send one for us. So Genesis 3, we're in the midst of God confronting Adam, Eve, and the serpent. Adam and Eve, because they chose to fall into sin, they chose to rebel against God's good commands, his good laws. In fact, he placed them in the middle of this, this garden and said there's only one restriction. Do not take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. Everything else is abundantly yours. There was one law and they chose to break it. So because they fell into sin, God is now punishing them for their sin. He's cursing the tempter. And in the middle of all of that, God actually makes a gracious promise. So look at verse 14. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, 
because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So the serpent had his part in this sin. He tempted them, and that's why God cursed the serpent. We learn later from the greater context of Scripture that the serpent is actually Satan. We know that from Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 20. It calls him that serpent of old. So he had an active role in tempting Adam and Eve, but because of that, he was cursed. And in the midst of this punishment, and in the midst of the banishment that's about to take place for Adam and Eve, God makes a promise. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, and I will put enmity, that's strife, that's tension, that's hostility. There's there's going to be a battle. He says, I'm going to put difficulty between you. Who's the you in verse 15? It's the serpent. So he's talking to Satan. I'm going to put strife between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now, if you stop and think about that for a minute, it's an odd, it's an odd way to describe what's happening. We're, we're really talking about the seed or the offspring of Satan. It's like, what does that mean that Satan has offspring? Well, Jesus clarifies for us exactly what is, is being talked about here. It's a spiritual understanding. It's a It's people who follow after Satan's rebellious, sinful pattern. In fact, in in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus looks at the religious leaders and says, you are of your father, the devil. So their, their physical lineage is human, but spiritually, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And so if you do not know Christ as your Savior, this is true of you. Your father is the devil, and you do what is representative of your nature. Your father gives you his nature. And spiritually speaking, that's sinful and rebellious. So the offspring of the serpent is a spiritual condition of Everybody that is born, sinful people. God says, I'm going to put strife or enmity between all of sinful mankind, your seed, and then there's her seed, the woman's seed. And notice that it's singular. And it also gives us a pronoun. You guys realize that pronouns matter. Proper pronouns matter. And it says that this offspring of the woman is a man. He is going to come. And there's going to be strife and tension between 
the followers of Satan, and this one who's going to come, who's going to be different than this offspring of Satan. So as soon as God makes this promise, this is how he describes it. He says, he, that's the offspring of the woman, he shall bruise you, that's the serpent, he's going to bruise the serpent on the head, and the serpent is going to bruise him on the heel. The word in Hebrew for bruise is to crush. And so obviously, if you had the choice between being crushed in your head and your heel, you would choose the heel. Being crushed in the head is fatal. It is permanent. That's what's going to happen to Satan. Now, God doesn't tell us all the details. He doesn't give us the name of the one that's going to come. He doesn't say how this is going to all play out in the redemptive plan of of human history, but he says this is the big idea of what's going to happen. One is going to come, even though he's going to be injured, and he will recover, but for the serpent, your head is going to be crushed. You're going to be defeated. That is a gracious promise to Adam and Eve because they don't deserve to be redeemed. And yet God says, I'm going to send one who's going to overthrow the serpent. So now, as we kind of launch into the Old Testament, people begin to look for the one who's going to come. Who is this seed of the woman who's going to overthrow the serpent? In fact, as you start Genesis chapter 4 in verse 1, when Eve gives birth to her first child by the name of Cain, do you remember what she said right when she gave birth in verse 1 of chapter 4? Yeah. I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. It's like that is a very weird, to our ears, a very weird thing for a mother to say when you give birth to a child. It seems that Eve is thinking this is the one that was promised to come. I have received this gift, this first child ever born with the help of the Lord, this man-child. Maybe this is he who was to come that's going to rescue us from this fall into sin. And obviously, Cain was not the promised one. In fact, he was a murderer, which is just like his father, the devil. And so every person that's going to be born is going to be failing, except for one that's going to come that God promised. So who is this one? It's obviously not Cain. So we know it's a he, but what else does the Old Testament tell us about this promise? one? Turn to Psalm chapter 2. We're going to read this section. I want you to listen to some more descriptors of this promised one. Verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. 
saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the promise in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is going to be a man. What else do we learn? What descriptors do we learn about this man in Psalm chapter 2? He's anointed. So God is going to set this one apart to do a very special, unique work in ministry. Good. He's anointed. What else? He's a king. So he's going to rule, and how far is his kingdom going to stretch? To the ends of the earth. All the kings, right? All of the earthly kings are going to rebel against him, and how is he going to respond to their rebellion? He's going to crush them, shatter them. He's going to dash them, right? So he's anointed. He's a king. He's a ruler. He's going to rule the world. What else do we learn about him? What did the Lord call him? My son. So he's the son of God. And he deserves worship. Pay homage to the son. Kiss him. Bless him. That his wrath may not be kindled against you. So he's a man, he's a king, he's a ruler, he's anointed, he's, a, he's, he's the son of God. Now we're starting to see this clarification of this one that God is going to send us and the one that he promised. So let's learn a little bit more. Turn to Psalm chapter 45. Again, the anointed one. Look at verse 6. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Notice that in verse 6, it's addressing one that he calls God, and yet God is the one that's going to anoint this one who is called God. And so keep that phrase in mind, and I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. And look at verse 8. This is the quotation from Psalm 45 in Hebrews chapter 1. 
It says, but of the Son, he says, quote, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So grammatically speaking, how do you guys know that this passage in Hebrews is talking about Jesus? I mean, immediately your mind might think, well, if we go back up to verse 1, because we're familiar with verses 1 and 2, God, after he spoke long ago in the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in, the la in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. But it doesn't name him, right? Now, the greater context of the New Testament makes it clear that this is talking about Jesus. But in the context of Hebrews, how do we know this is talking about Christ? If you guys look at chapter 2 and verse 9, all the way through chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, all the way to chapter uh, verse 9 in chapter 2, you have all these pronouns, he, the son, he, 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 he. And then in verse 9, we finally are confirmed but we do see him who was made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Again, pronouns matter. Proper pronouns matter. Hebrews is telling us that Psalm 45 is applied to Christ that he is the anointed one. He's God, he's the son, he is the ruler. And we're just looking at a couple highlights, but I want to show you one more before we look at his priesthood properly. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 61. Now, this passage is unique in that the anointed one is now the one who's going to be speaking. So before, God was talking about his anointed one. Now, the anointed one is talking in the first person. Look at verse 1. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So this anointed one is going to do some incredible things. What are some of the accomplishments of the anointed one in Psalm 61? What is he going to come and do? He has good news and he's going to bring it to who? The afflicted. Okay, what else? 
if you're a prisoner and you have somebody who comes and says, I am proclaiming that you are about to be released, that's good news, right? What else? Beauty for ashes. I'm going to take death and corruption from you, and I'm going to give you beauty. What else? Mm -hmm. So he's going to take their mourning, and he's going to give them oil of gladness. And in the beginning of verse 2, it also says he's going to proclaim something. The favorable year of the Lord. He is coming as prophet, as one who's going to announce that God is giving favor to his creation. It should be shocking to us that God is going to do this, because if you start in Genesis chapter 3, and the, the, the nature and decision of every single person that's born is to be rebellious, and God says, because of your sin, you're going to have death, you're going to have captivity, you're going to have corruption, and he says, yet I'm going to show you favor through this anointed one that's going to come. So having looked at Isaiah 61, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 4. Starting in verse 14. The very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Look at this. Verse 14, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Okay, stop there for a minute. Remember, the anointing, the symbol, the picture in the Old Testament was God setting somebody apart to do a great work by pouring oil on them, but it was symbolic. It was symbolic of God saying, you're going to accomplish this by receiving the Holy Spirit. And we see this of Jesus in verse 14. He returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. When did the Spirit come upon Jesus? Very close to that, yeah. It was right after that, but it was tied to a specific event in his life, his baptism. When Jesus came out of the water, what came down? As a dove descends, the Spirit came down upon Jesus. He was anointed. When Jesus comes out of the baptismal waters, he is fulfilling the prophecy of what we've seen of the anointed one who is going to come. And it says here in verse 14, now he goes out in the power of the Spirit, and it says, and news spread about him throughout all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. By the way, this is Isaiah 61, what we just read, verse 18. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives 
and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you fathom what it would have been like to be sitting in the synagogue and to hear Jesus quote, Isaiah 61, verse 1 2, close the scroll and say, I'm fulfilling this prophecy. Today is the favorable year of the Lord because the anointed one has come. So it's Jesus, he's the anointed prophet. But what does his priesthood look like? I want you guys to turn to Hebrews chapter 7. The book of Hebrews is vital for Jesus to be qualified to be the great high priest. In fact, as the gospel began to be preached and people began to proclaim Christ at the beginning of the church, the Jews who would have heard and started to learn about Jesus, that he was the Son of God and that he was the great high priest, when they heard the aspect of him being the high priest, they would have hesitated. They would have, some of them would have been unconvinced that he was even qualified to be a priest. And the reason is, from a physical standpoint, what is Jesus's family lineage? What tribe does he descend from? No? Anybody know? He's from Judah. Where do all the priests come from? From the Levites, the tribe of Levi. So in their mind, if he doesn't come from the tribe of Levi, he is not qualified to be a priest. Hebrews, part of its message is to prove that not only is Jesus qualified to be a priest, but his priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. If you're going to sum up the book of Hebrews in one word, it'll be better. The whole message of these 13 chapters is to put before you, Jesus is better than the angels because there were some that worshiped angels during this time period. Jesus is better than Moses. They would have been like, whoa, what are you talking about? Jesus is greater than Abraham, which we're going to see in chapter 7. Christ is better than the land of Canaan, which represented rest for the nation of Israel, he has a greater and better rest for you because it's not physical, it's spiritual. And his priesthood is better. It's greater than the Levitical priesthood. And the ministry that he does is better. The benefits of being with this anointed one is greater than all of the people that have come before him. And so because of this, Hebrews is, is settling the fact that he can be a priest, and not only that, but his priesthood is superior. So look at chapter, actually to pick up the context, look at chapter 6, verse 19. I want you to listen to the description of the priesthood of Christ. It says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, 
having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, hang on to that name. The Melchizedekian priesthood is the reason why Jesus is the great high priest. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was, first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although they are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Here's the, here's the central verse. Look at verse 7. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. So Abraham was chosen by God to begin the nation of Israel. And the descendants from Abraham included the tribe of Levi, which is where the priests came from. The whole point of this picture is that there was this man. This is not Jesus in the Old Testament because the text tells us that he was like the Son of Man, so it's not him. But there was this man in the Old Testament that God had set apart to be a priest. His name was Melchizedek. He's mysterious. We don't know much about him. We don't know his family. We don't know his mother, his father, his genealogy. But the author is saying, well, even in that, he appears to be like Jesus because he has this perpetual enduring genealogy, which is a small picture. Uh, it's, a, it's a nod or a reference to the fact that Jesus is truly eternal. This man wasn't eternal, but the mysterious nature around him gave the image of a perpetual lineage. And he's saying, well, Jesus came to fulfill that perfectly. So Melchizedek shows up on the scene, and Abraham, this is before any of his descendants come, so this is before the priesthood of the Levites, Abraham does something to Melchizedek. What does he do? What does he give him? Yes, he gives him a tithe. So Abraham recognizes that this priest is greater than he is. And it says that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And verse 7 tells us that the greater blesses the lesser. The point of this passage is Jesus' priesthood 
is greater than the Levitical priesthood. He's in the order of Melchizedek. Why is it greater? Because it's eternal. It's never going to end. And so Jesus enters into this role for us as priest. He's the anointed one. He's come in the power of the Spirit. He's God's son. He's a world ruler. And he also came to bring good news of salvation from the sins of corruption. What was the main function of the priest in the Old Testament? I mean, they had a lot of different functions. What was the core function of the priest? Yes. Exactly. Remember, the people can't come to God on their own. So they come to the priest, and the priest performs a, an animal sacrifice on behalf of the people for their sins, right? We have a problem, though. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. When you're looking at human priests, Old Testament priests, those men were also sinful. So they had to provide a sacrifice for their own sin before they could provide a sacrifice for the people. But there's a second problem. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. It says, For the law, this Old Testament, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Here's the problem. In the Old Testament, the priest constantly made sacrifices for sin. And verse 1 tells us that those human animal sacrifices can never take sin away. In fact, verse 4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the human priesthood never took sin away from the people. So we needed something better. We needed something greater. So turn back to Hebrews chapter 9 and look at verse 24. It tells us the greater sacrifice. Verse 24. It says, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. So when the author says that there's a holy place made with hands, what is he making reference to? The temple or the tabernacle, either one, right? Those physical build buildings, the physical tent, it's a mere shadow of what's going to come. Jesus didn't enter into a tent or a tabernacle. It says, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the great high priest, enters into God's presence 
and he offers a sacrifice, a once for all sacrifice of himself. He is the priest and he's the sacrifice. Verse 28, well, 27, in as much as is appointed for men to die once and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So the imagery here is that every year, every sin, every failure, you would constantly come to the Old Testament priests and offer, and, and none of those sacrifices would be effective because if they were, then you would do it once and then you, it would be done. But the anointed one who comes, the, the great high priest becomes the sacrifice himself, and he provides the once-for-all final payment for sin. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. You guys, salvation in the Old Testament has always been by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was what? Reckoned to him as righteousness. It wasn't the sacrifices. It was faith in what God said, and they believed God. In fact, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus come, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is the great high priest who is going to be the sacrifice himself, which is why he came. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit to come. So what is, what's the outcome for us? Because Jesus is the great high priest, what does this mean for us? There's several things. First of all, there's a warning. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. It says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So that's severe. You discard the Old Testament law. You, you're guilty of it. Two or three witnesses confirm that you are guilty. You're going to lose your life. That's bad. But in verse 29, it says, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? The warning in this passage is saying the anointed one has come. He's died for us. He's risen from the dead. God is offering you salvation in Christ. If you trample underfoot his sacrifice, how severe will your punishment be? What does it look to trample underfoot the sacrifice of Christ? To ignore it, to hear the gospel and refuse to bow your knee to Christ, to say, I'm a good person, I don't need, that's, that's okay for you, but I don't need Christ. There's a warning that the punishment for those who refuse Christ is going to be severe. 
So if you haven't come to Christ, don't reject his sacrifice because you will pay for it. But for the believer, Jesus comes to proclaim a favorable year. He comes to tell us good news. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. There's two passages I want you to see that I hope will be an encouragement to you as you think about Christ being your great high priest. The first one here in Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 14. It says, therefore, since we, this is believers, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For the believer, because Jesus is the great high priest, the first exhortation is for you to hold fast your confession, that you believe in him, continue to proclaim him. When those doubts come in into your mind, go back to the truth of what the scripture says and hold fast to the confession. Tell other people that you believe in Christ. Declare that you're a follower of Christ, regardless of what the world does or thinks of you. Hold fast that confession. But he also says that you will receive mercy and you can find grace in your time of need. Are we needy? The need severity differs. Sometimes it's small, sometimes it's great. We are constantly in need. And he says you can draw close to the throne with confidence. You can pray with confidence because of what Jesus has done. And you're going to find grace in that time of need. And then lastly, you can have assurance that your eternity is secure. Look at Hebrews chapter 6. We read this earlier, but now I want you to hear this passage in light of the benefit of being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19. It says, This hope we have as an anchor for the soul. What is the purpose of an anchor in life? Yes. Yeah, the ship is being tossed. It's in danger. It lets down the anchor to make sure that they're secure. This picture of an anchor, for those of you who are in Christ, your soul can be anchored. Why? It is a hope that is sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. Jesus goes into not the physical temple, not the physical tabernacle. He goes into the very presence of God, and your soul can be anchored with Christ in God's presence in your salvation. He was a forerunner for us, verse 20 says, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is forever your perfect high priest. The sacrifice is done, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he makes intercession for you. That's why he says earlier, come with boldness to the throne. You have needs, 
you have prayers, you have burdens. He says, come to the throne because if, if God has provided this payment for the worst offenses that we could commit against him, he's already covered all of that. Won't he give you the lesser things? Come to him boldly. Have confidence. Hold fast and know that you're secure because he's never going to leave his position as high priest. Does this not make you want to worship Christ this morning? So as we go and we sing and we pray and we listen to the word, think about him as the prophet who came and spoke the truth to us, and he is the priest that is permanent, sitting in the presence of God, and we are anchored to Christ. Your sin's done with. We should praise him for that. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our prophet, our high priest, who himself was the sacrifice. And now he's alive forevermore. And he makes intercession for us. We have security. We have peace. We have favor from you because of what Jesus did. Thank you for the promise in Genesis 3.15 that the anointed one, your son, the ruler, the king of the earth has come to set free those who are captive, to trade our ashes and give us, give us beauty. And Father, we look forward to the return of the anointed one. We want to see him face to face. And so we pray with John at the end of Revelation. We pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we ask this in his name. Amen.